Welcome to the True Falls Film Festival. This was a, a film that was going to assert, no, climate change isn't just images of nature under attack, starving polar bears and the like. This is going to be set in people's kitchens, on the beach, in skate parks, and it's going to suggest this is part of the climate that's in crisis right now. Hi, welcome to the True False podcast presented by KBIA. I'm Sebastian Martinez Valdivia. Climate change is an issue so broad and pervasive, it's easy to abstract. It looms large over so many aspects of life, it can feel less like a subject to explore and more like a mood or a feeling. But instead of approaching it from a distance or preparing a sanitized lecture, in her newest film, The Hottest August, filmmaker and true-false alum Brett Story looks for the climate crisis's many intersections with labor, with capitalism, and the human psyche. Story is a geographer, and both The Hottest August and her previous feature, The Prison and Twelve Landscapes, explore their subject matter through place and people's relationships with the places they inhabit. It's a discipline evident in her filmmaking, and one she discovered through it. When people ask me what geography is, I I give them the simplest explanation, which is also the truest, which is just that geography is the study of um, space and our relationship to space. And within that, it's particularly as a discipline, um, invites people to think critically about how Um, space is socially produced, how we humans make our environments, um, whether those environments be a home, a a neighborhood, a city, um, an oil pipeline, and then how those spaces in turn make us, how we as subjects are informed and made by the places and the environments that we inhabit. So for me, that's, you know, that's um, a sort of rich kind of discipline to do and to ask the kind of questions that I'm, I'm interested in asking, um, not just as a, a scholar or a journalist or an activist, but as a, as a filmmaker. And in fact, I had discovered geography because I was making a film. So my, one of my earliest films, nothing that thankfully is public right now, but a sort of when I was trying to be a filmmaker and figuring out how to use the tools, um, I started out by making a film about the, the attempts of my landlord in a neighborhood in Montreal to evict me and my roommates and how that was indicative of a, the larger forces of gentrification going on in, in our neighborhood in Montreal. And when I was working on that film, I went to the library and got out a bunch of books on gentrification to school myself more about that topic and understand it better. And the best book that I read on that theme was by a geographer, a human geographer named Neil Smith. It really did the best kind of thing that that I think good scholarship or good theory should do, which was it it sort of liberated me from the idea that this eviction I was facing was in any way sort of my fault or just particular and both particular or specific or coincidental to my life and instead enabled me to think about it as part of a a sort of larger structural issue having to do with how cities around the world are changing because of 
changes in how capitalism works. And yeah, and it helped it helped me inf- helped inform the film that I was making and I've sort of discovered ever since that all of my films are at their core interested in um how people inhabit spaces and how we can sort of reacquaint ourselves with understanding the spaces, the real world that we have a part in making and how you know, cinema in particular, as a strange art form, as a multimedia art form with sound and images and all these other capacities, um, can also itself facilitate a new way of seeing our environments, a critical way of seeing, a strange way of seeing our our environments. And and in that sense, you know, I feel like geography and cinema have have a lot in common and can do very similar and and um, complementary kinds of political work in the world. With your previous film, The Prison in Twelve Landscapes, you looked at how this social idea of the prison kind of manifested itself in a variety of different places across the country. With The Hottest August, you focused in on one specific location in New York City Mm. to kind of look at this idea of climate change and how we're reacting to it, processing it, not doing that. So what inspired that decision to set it exclusively in the city? Yeah. I mean, part of it is that I just, I I like working with limits. Um, I, I think because when I approach films, they're they're often overly ambitious in the kinds of things that they want to interrogate. Um, and I one of the things that drink, draws me to film in general is the, the language of the edit and the way the sort of language of the edit itself um, demands association. It works through association, right? You, you, you cut two shots together and you make something new. You demand that the audience try and think about why they're sitting together, why you've jumped from one image to the next or one scene to the next. And I think that there's, that's, that's really f- fun. And, and the, all the things that you can do with the edit are really exciting to me. But because my films, you know, really want to take advantage of the language of association and invite audiences to think expansively, you know, in this case, in the hottest August, not just about climate change, but about racial violence, about late capitalism, about loneliness, about um, uh, housing. Um, I feel like having um, cinematic limits helps contain and, and, and organize um, all of the kind of wild detours I, I otherwise want to take people on. So in the prison in 12 landscapes, the limit that I set for myself was that I was never going to show an actual prison. This was going to be a film whose very conceit was to um, s- suggest that we can, we can and we should see the prison and see the prison differently if we look everywhere but the actual penitentiary. And so it takes its audience on a journey through 12 discrete non-prison landscapes and says we can think about these um, as prison spaces. Um, So that was a kind of formal limit to that film. And with this film, you know, part of what I wanted to understand and um, interrogate was just how, how people are coping with and how we're treating each other when the future itself has come to feel or be foreclosed by our own actions. Um, And so I really wanted to create a kind of um, portrait of a society in which, you know, through a set of encounters with a whole bunch of different people and conversations with a whole bunch of different people and observations from a bunch of different moments, we, we gradually get a sort of portrait or a microcosm of a, of a moment. And so 
yeah, it felt necessary for that to have limits. And there's, there's something about the idea of the city, you know, as a sort of a dense space, a contained space, a knowable thing, which also holds immense difference. You know, think about all the different kinds of lives that coexist in within one place that's called New York, people living very, very different realities all in the same space, sometimes within, you know, meters of each other, if you know, or blocks of each other. And yeah, I, I, I felt like there was something elegant about deciding to bound the film through the notion of the city and through the temporal framework of one month. New York is a hugely recognizable place with mm. a lot of like images and landmarks that have a lot of semiotic value. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about the locations that you chose, the specific images that you chose and how you came to those, if they were just things that had stuck in your mind, you know, existing in the space or yeah. if they were... I don't know, more heavily thought out beforehand. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's actually really, in some ways, it's really hard to make a film um, in a place that is already iconic, right? New York has, is not just appears already in so many films, nonfiction and fiction, but, um, and in this way, it's it's like the prison in my last film. It's, it's almost overdetermined by its own iconography. It's like, as soon as we see see images that signal New York, we can tune out because we know it. We've seen it before. We're so um, immersed in the vocabulary of what New York is. Um, so that, yeah, that, that proved, you know, a certain kind of challenge. Um, but also it was a lot... It, it was a lot of fun. It was really fun to re-see the city. Um, you know, I was living there. I'd been living there for a few years, so I knew it a little bit. My producer had grown up in New York, had grown up in Queens. Our sound editor had grown up in the Bronx, and our cinematographer had recently moved to New York. So we had different relationships to that city, and the the task, you know, at hand was really just to wander around to choose boroughs that tend to be underrepresented in a lot of the New York iconography. So we spent a lot of time in the Bronx and in Queens and Staten Island, but also just to like spend time really observing. And I I think this was probably, you know, a little maddening for my, for our cinematographer in the sense that there was no shot list. Um, And in fact, it's like kind of an anti-shot list film um, because the whole point was just to pay attention, pay attention to what people are saying, pay attention to what they're not saying, um, what they're, what they're saying instead of saying something else. Um, But also what can we see when we don't really, we don't have an agenda, you know, again, this wasn't just, this was a film that was trying to avoid the cliches of New York, but it was also trying to avoid the usual cliches of images associated with climate change. So this was a a film that was going to assert, no, climate change isn't just images of nature under attack, starving polar bears and the like. This is going to be set in people's kitchens, on the beach, in skate parks. And it's going to suggest this is part of the climate that we need to take serious, the climate that's in crisis right now. Were there any places that you had in mind when this idea was coalescing that you knew you wanted to have in the film? Or I guess alternatively, were there any places that you filmed that have kind of stuck with you more than others? You know, it's more that, I would say it's more that once one is, once one sets about the task of trying to talk to people, talk to strangers, and um, film everyday life, you really start noticing what kind of environments are hospitable to that and what environments are inhospitable to that and who inhabits certain spaces and who doesn't. So, you know, it was actually 
when we tried to film in Manhattan, it was actually really difficult. Um, in part because a lot of the space is privatized. So we would be like, oh, here's a, here's a like, nice plaza. Finally, some open space. Let's film in this plaza. And then we would find out that that plaza is owned by the bank and that there's a security guard right there. And he was ready to kick us out of that space as soon as we set up the camera. So there's a way in which the space environments are, are parceled out and that are really, really important to real estate are also heavily policed. And that makes it really difficult to film. And, and this making this film really made me attuned to that. As you might um, infer from that, it, it meant that we ended up uh, filming a lot in public space. Public space was the easiest to access and it was also public space tends to, to be where in the summertime at least people congregate for leisure and therefore have the time to talk to a complete stranger who's there asking questions. Um, and, and, uh, one of the things we noticed at a certain point was that um, we weren't encountering a lot of very wealthy people. And we were like, oh, we're sort of trying to be attuned to rep- issues of representation and diversity and all the different kinds of people um, that inhabit this city, but our demographics are skewing very like working class and lower income. And that, of course, is because in a place like New York over the summer, Rich people just don't have to go to the public beach because they've got, you know, they've got the resources to buy themselves um, private space, um, whether that's in their backyards or in their on their rooftop pools or um, in the Hamptons. And so you really I mean, I feel like if anything, working on a project like this um, made me much more aware of how segregation is actually organized into the very fabric of a city like New York, despite its density, despite this feeling like we're all on top of each other and we're all so proximate to each other. There's, there's ways in which people's lives are deeply cordoned off from each other. And that kind of goes back to that idea from geography and studying place and how people inhabit spaces. You have those cross sections with like labor and with capitalism yeah. and social stratification. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, and you hear it in the film too. One of the questions that I was asking everybody because I was trying to ask these sort of open questions and let let the conversations go where people wanted to take them. So I was asking people a kind of sort of open question about what they worry about, if they have any worries about the future. And the number one thing people wanted to talk about was housing and the number of people that we met who were going through an immediate housing crisis, um, you know, is you know, maybe shouldn't be shocking, but still was shocking. Like that is, you know, part of the question that the film asks has to do with how it is that human beings can at this moment seemingly preside over their own extinction, do this kind of slow walk into um, catastrophe. And I think one of the answers it it offers is that 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 crisis, that existential crisis, which feels like it should be all consuming, actually takes a back burner to the crises of daily life, like where to live, you know, what to eat tomorrow, what to do about your kids the next day when you have to go to work, these kinds of things. Coming up, filmmaker Brett's story talks about experiencing the wide-scale tragedy of climate change on a personal level, as a human being, and also politically, and how she approached depicting that experience in her film. 
we're living in a moment in which dread and grief are a kind of commons at this point you know so many of us feel that how could we not you know how can we watch what's happening um, in Australia and hear radio programs about the screams of thousands of koala bears and not just feel this this deep grief we'll be back after this Welcome back to the True-False Podcast, presented by KBIA. I'm Sebastián Martínez Valdivia. There's a sequence at one point in Brett Story's newest film, The Hottest August, that depicts various exhibits at New York's Natural History Museum. As uninterested patrons wander by on their phones or with their kids, exotic taxidermied animals stare out blankly from carefully arranged dioramas. The Quiet Passage is one of many in the film that brings into stark relief how humans are inhabiting the overwhelming ecological loss of climate change. I think it it can be interpreted lots of ways, but I do think it's meant as a register uh, of our own imminent fossilization, you know? I feel like this was always going to be a film that had a lot of animals in it, um, in part to invite audience members to think about how they might be seeing us, you know, to, to do this kind of almost slightly science fiction-ish thing of, of trying to inhabit a different set of eyes, whether that be the eyes of a future generation who's looking back at, on ourselves, or it's the eyes of these animals that we cohabitate with and who are affected by our choices. Um, but the film, yeah, the film was always and from its very origins um, attempt by an attempt by me to grapple with my own sense of grief and sense of dread um, and to think about, try and think about dread and grief politically, not just as a personal affliction, not just as a personal battle that to, to deal with alone or through um, distraction, but to try and um, use the, f- the fact that, that we're in, living in a moment in which dread and grief are a kind of commons at this point. You know, so many of us feel that. How could we not? You know, how can we watch what's happening um, in Australia and hear radio programs about the screams of thousands of koala bears and not just feel this this deep grief? And I feel like the fact that this grief is a kind of commons also means that it's worth airing publicly and exploring publicly and using a public medium like film to explore because we it can be an occasion for solidarity and you know I, I I certainly don't feel like there's nothing to be done I think that there's lots to be done and I think that we need to find every and any way to um, appreciate the common cause and the, the common conditions or the common feelings that give us reason to act in solidarity with each other. There's also some really great moments of levity in the film. At one point, somebody says, I'm a real Gershwin freak is the (laughs) line that's in the film. Uh, There's other kind of funny moments that I guess are really inevitable when you're out filming, especially in a place like New York. Yeah. How did you choose to kind of deploy those moments to break up the kind of oppressive feeling of impending doom or to bring them into more relief? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, both of those things. And also, like, I just really wanted the film to be full of moments that remind us that we still have the capacity to delight each other. Um, 
And I, you know, I think, I think that alongside grief and dread comes, at least for me anyways, a kind of creeping misanthropy. Like, it's really hard to read through an entire newspaper and not come away kind of hating humans. Like, you know, it's just we're inundated with news of the terrible things that humans do. And some people more than others, you know, I certainly think that there's a distinction to be made between everyday folks and people in positions of power who are using and abusing that power. But still, like, I just feel like awful about humanity sometimes. And so making a film like this is, you know, it was a tremendous, I mean, making any film feels like this for me. It's a, it's a tremendous um, gift and an opportunity to remember how much more complicated um, and generous and selfish and funny and weird human beings are. Um, and I wanted the film to, to skew weird, you know, the, and I think the humor that you that is in the film, the moments that we laugh, it's a kind of like weird laughter. Like, you know, I remember one screening, um, in, it was the Brooklyn screening, in fact, and the, there's a scene in the film in which you're watching a kind of brawl on a baseball field ha- happen. And then the, the, the um, film cuts to this like woman on her phone and beside her is a pet duck and the crowd just erupted in all this laughter. And it's true. It's like totally weird that she has this duck and there's just a blase about the fact that they're at a baseball game one night in Brooklyn and that there's a big fight going on. It's like really Um, kicking off. Yeah. 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 Um, But I just, I think it's really important to like feel some love and humor is a really useful way, not just to have, levity amongst all the tragedy, but to um, remind us uh, that despite it all, there's a, there's a lot of ways that we can love each other through and despite um, the dreadfulness. I think that's really great. And it really comes through. I mean, it partially just because of the breadth of people who you talk to, mm. you really get that sense of humanity and uh, in a little bit of a hopeful way, you know, which mm. is really a relief. One of the things that struck me, um, I guess, as particularly distinctive about the film was also this really gorgeous narration by Claire Coulter. Mm. And it's like really lyrical and, you know, it adds some context, but it also just kind of establishes a feeling. Mm. I'm really curious about what your decision making process was in terms of including that and putting it where it is. It was not my original idea to have a narrator for this film, even though a lot of the films that have inspired this one, including um, the film Le Jolie May by Chris Marker and Pierre Lam, has a narrator. Um, I, it's not something I've done before, and I, I feel like the bar is really high. It's really ha- hard to write narr- good narration, and it's it's actually really easy to write like kind of bad narration that stinks up a whole film and so I'm wary of of doing that um and it was my it was originally my editor's suggestion my editor Nels Bangerter who's a really brilliant editor and he was like is there another element we can add we've got all of this footage from this you know this sort of everyday footage over the course of one month and there's no sort of thing that dictates the structure but maybe we we just need another element that can give it kind of almost like tent poles or something and at the time, I was really obsessed with this um, this essay that a friend had introduced me to by the writer Annie Dillard about a total eclipse in 1979. And there was going to be an eclipse that particular August in 2017. And I was reading this essay, and it was sort of the single best description of my own feeling about climate catastrophe, the way she describes this total 
eclipse sort of coming upon um, her. And it was really beautiful. And I was like, okay, well, I'm not sure about narration, but what about using part of this text as um, a preface or something? And once we, we got our heads around that idea, then at that point, I started exploring having narration occur throughout. And at first, I was trying to write that narration, but I didn't, I found it distracting to write a whole sort of story. And instead, I just, I wanted to sort of keep in sync with this idea of the footage being a, an archive, an archive that we're not waiting for some future finder to turn into a film, but that's been turned into a film at the moment. It's it's being made. Um, and so the idea was that I would gather, I would write a little bit and then gather a few other literary texts as if, you know, again, a, a, cat, a hard drive of footage and a handful of books were the remnants of this moment. Um, so that's how I think about the texts that appear in the in the film. And I think that they do. They're not, you know, they they don't give information. They don't explain anything. They just add a kind of different element around which I hope some of the some of the themes of the film, some of which are very quiet. You know, you can bear, you sort of experience them more as mood than anything explicitly on the surface, they can start to eddy around these pieces of text and and Claire's reading of the text. So I know the geographer Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who's done a lot of work on prison abolition, was influential in making Prison and Twelve Landscapes. So I was just kind of curious uh, if you could talk about what some of your inspirations were, you know, some of your touchstones Mm. going into this film. Mm. Well, one of them, yeah, certainly was this Chris Marker film. Um, So in 1963, Two, Chris Marker and his camera person, Pierre Lhomme, surveyed everyday Parisians uh, over the course of one month. Um, and they produced this film that is remarkable for a lot of reasons. But I think one of the reasons it's remarkable is that for so long, you don't know what it's about. You're sort of just going along for the ride. You're just like listening to some guy rant about the price of potatoes and watching someone else like go on about his cars and then like like watching the camera zoom in on the spider that's crawling up his his lapel and it's totally mesmerizing even while it's without a story and without a theme and this is supposed to be you know in the in the world of like documentary truth telling this is like this is supposed to not work you know you're supposed to have like like a fixed subject or a fixed character or story that you're telling so that the fact that this film could be so mesmerizing even while you don't know what a it's about is already amazing. But then about an hour in or 45 minutes in, you realize that without even knowing it, you're watching this um, searing indictment of the French colonial experiment in Algeria. And it's really a film about reckoning with the legacies of colonialism. Um, And really, my favorite kinds of films are also are films that are, you know, oblique like that, that that don't tell you exactly what they're doing, but ask you to do a, a, a certain amount of work, both while you're watching it and then afterwards, like you, films that you can't get out of your brain that you want to go talk to your friends with about afterwards, uh, or you, you have new ideas about two weeks after watching them. To wrap up, uh, and just to turn a question that you asked in the film back on you, and I apologize if this has happened in Q&As afterwards, uh, but I'm just genuinely curious how you're feeling about the future. Yeah. Um, it, that's such a hard question because I think we, and I think that this is part of the point of the film as well, is that we can feel 
many things at once and think many things at once. And some of those things can be in seeming contradiction with each other. Um, I think it would be an unreasonable thing to feel optimistic about the future. I think that there, I think that we have a lot of evidence that we are in grave danger and that we are at this moment, um, organized through a system, um, that is premised on abusing and exploiting the resources of this planet. Um, and we're seeing the wreckage of that exploitation. And I, 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 so I don't feel, I don't feel optimistic, but I don't feel hopeless. And I think that for me, the, the difference is that, um, I feel a lot of motivation. I think that hopelessness suggests that, you know, ready just to, to pack it in. And I feel incredibly energized and motivated and like, you know, full of energy to work with others to make transformation happen. Um, And, you know, and that includes being incredibly excited by what people are doing on the ground. You know, right now I'm, I'm doing this interview from Toronto. Our um, national railway system just announced that they're canceling all trains across the country because there are hundreds of blockades on train lines in solidarity with an indigenous community in British Columbia that is protesting um, a natural gas pipeline on its territory. Um, It's a massive and unprecedented set of organized actions across the country. And it's in solidarity, not just with with indigenous land defenders, but in, in support of a global movement against uh, the fossil fuel industry and the continued extraction of our resources. So all this to say, people are doing incredible work and it's, it's really important to join up with other people. And part of the part of, I think if there's any message of the hottest August at all, it's that there's no future in aloneness. And if the future is going to exist, it's going to be through collective action and understanding ourselves as collective beings, not solitary beings. And that's where I draw not optimism per se, but energy for sure. Brett Story is a filmmaker and geographer whose most recent film, The Hottest August, screened at True False 2019. You can catch it on PBS this spring. It's airing on April 20th, and you can check your local listings for details. That's it for this week's episode of the True False Podcast presented by KBIA. This episode was produced and edited by Bill Finn. Our music is by Tim Pilcher using sounds from the True False Film Fest. We are just one week away from the fest. So if you haven't, be sure to subscribe. We'll be bringing you interviews with filmmakers coming this year, as well as live conversations from the fest and much more. You can find past episodes of the podcast, including our programmer preview for this year's festival, on our website at kbia.org or wherever you get your podcasts. True False is on Twitter at True False, and you can find me at Sebastian Sings. I'm Sebastian Martinez Valdivia. Thanks for listening.